Coming up, we talk about disturbers. Shit disturbers? Pot disturbers? And shit pot disturbers. Shit pot disturbers. You shit pot disturbers. We talk about 24. The Beep Boop Show. Beep. We talk about leaps of faith. In your callow youth. And with the guys setting up your squibs. That's right. Have you ever been squibbed, Brody? I experimented in college. Oh, there's no judgment here. Classy ties, our guest, and animal poop. Classy ties, our guest, and animal poop. What are three things that appeared on Johnny Carson? Heyo! Love my dad, we talk about spontaneity. Again, please. We talk about spontaneity. Do it in an accent this time. Oh, we talk about spontaneity. That's the one. I can keep doing it. I, I you want me more spontaneous. We talk about San Jose. You know the way to that place, Brody? Practice. I think that's right. And we talk with actor, comedian, artist, and internet celebrity, Kevin Pollack. On the Shaky Town Radio Hour, Fun Navy. The Shaky Town Radio Hour is on the air. I'm Gene George. I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. Uh, wow, this is a this is something. This is a show that uh, I'm going to bring our guest in, um, Kevin Pollock. Welcome to the Shaky Town Radio Hour. It is a pleasure and an honor uh, to have you. And I want to open. All right. With this anecdote, the the uh, we met at the Paul F. Tompkins show a while back, and um, I can't remember if it was the first time we met or the second time we met. My wife, I introduced my wife to you, and she said, "Where do I know you from?" Nice. And I, my mind boggled for a little while, and I'm like, "Remember every movie? <laughs> uh, you've uh, comedian, actor." TV host, uh, what what uh, uh, internet celebrity, uh-huh. dude. That's yeah. Well, you know, if you don't diversify, you die. And uh, also, my latest mantra: if you're not creating, you're waiting. So, between those two, I'm uh, I'm all over the place. I'm hard to avoid. And if you have any sort of cable, it's difficult to spin around the dial on any weekend and not hit something. Yeah, some crappy movie. Now, when you do that, when you and you find yourself, are you? I, I tend to, to love to hear the sound of my own voice. So, do you, so seeing myself on top of that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Do, do you stop everything you're doing and just, just and do you receive it as a, an audience member with fresh eyes, or are you just concentrating on I did that, I made that choice, I like that, maybe I would have been that different. Well, um, most actors, actresses, I found. Don't actually enjoy watching it. I uh, go the other way. I have every movie I've ever done playing on a continuous loop on every television set in the house. We actually had to ask you to turn a bunch of them off. <laughs> and some of them were pretty good. I to do admit I got sucked in. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I um, I'm always afraid that that um, someone's going to catch me watching myself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's been a a fear. For the last 25 years, so consequently, I, I'm, uh, my instinct is to spin right past anything that I'm in. Yeah. 
Um, but every now and then I'll stop for one in particular moment or scene that I recall. And often I'll just recall how much fun it was shooting it more than how good the scene is. Right, right. I'll know what we were doing in between takes. I, yeah, I can't, I can't watch myself. Like, like, you know, you're supposed to record your sets and you're supposed to critique yourself. And I have a really hard time with that. I have a really hard time. Because I just see every flaw and I'm less I want to, you know, punch myself in the face. <laughs> yeah, I'm a lot less critical of my uh, work than most performers or creative people are. I, I, I joke about the everything I've done playing on a continuous loop. But if I had my way, that's what it would be. And you'd be okay with it? I would be really okay. It'd be a, a nonstop celebration of the I, I think I could be, I think I could be, I could appear okay with it, but I would not be okay with it. Well, it isn't normal. You, you have to really suffer from hey, look at me disease. And, but I am a, uh, I'm an admitted narcissist, so it's real simple for me to embrace the, uh, every possible image of me. Although it's interesting, as long as the images are moving, I'm fine with it. I am unable to look at a still photograph of myself for more than a second without my head exploding. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm filled with uh, loathing. Mm. Not of myself, but rather what I look like in a still photo. Right, that moment, that very tight. What the hell is that? That's it's like <laughs> when you're when you're watching TiVo and you happen to pause it on on someone, and it's never it's like never the most flattering picture. Even mm-hmm. if it's somebody who's attractive, you know, you could have like a John Hammer or a George Clooney or somebody, and you pause it, and it's their, you know, Madame Tussaud. Oh yeah, the freeze. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, it, it's uh, we've we've had um, we had uh, Ann Beats on the show fairly early on, and uh, she's another person that's been just doing working for you know ever ever yeah ever I guess is the, is the word, but uh, um, I mean you you've you've done a lot of you've done a lot of good work. I mean, and and you kept up you know I, I, a lot of it seems like a lot of comedians who turned to acting and were successful. Um, don't do it as a vocation anymore. I mean, I guess Robin Williams drops in every now and again at like UCB and places like that to do a set or to watch stuff. But you, you still go, I mean, you just had a DVD come out. Uh, yeah, but to his credit, Robin did as well. He, he actually toured, I seem to recall last year and, and did an HBO did special, he? but it'd been a long, a long time. So, Oh, he did. You know yeah, what? I'm yeah. totally off that track. Remember he had his heart attack when he was on tour. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's how I, found out he was on tour. Ah. Um, but um, I, I stopped touring after A Few Good Men came out because that was the crossover. Two things were going on. Um, it was a crossover for me as an actor from having to audition to getting offers. Oh, yeah. That movie was so gigantic, and it was Welcome to the Bigs for me. And everyone else in the movie was super famous, and I was pretty much the only person, a- actor, that the audience got to discover. And so consequently, show business discovered me, too, on a bigger level. And, that, and so I started getting offers. So at the same time that I was making that ridiculous cross-the-goal-line transition that every actor kind of dreams about, uh, the stand-up comedy world, the gold rush of the 80s by 1992, was dead. So the big combination of stand-up club scene Dying yeah. horribly from saturation, same thing that killed Bobville um, from its heyday. Uh, 
uh, ending getting offers instead of auditioning, it was easy for me to drift away from stand-up. And I stopped touring for nine years, consequently. Did about 40 movies in that time, six of which are really good. Uh, that's a good percentage. Well, not really. In Hollywood, that's a great... <laughs> dude, in Hollywood, I think that's a great percentage. Mm. I mean, well, you all, can look at a lot of career arcs that are... It's all perspective, I suppose. But uh, Direct. <laughs> but I did... I stayed away such a long time that... I I mean, I I would still do occasional corporate dates and one nights and charity things. So it wasn't like I hadn't done a set in nine years or even close to it. Each of those nine years, I probably performed on stage three to six times. So when I got to the end of, uh, well, I'll just say at the millennium, it, I started to miss stand-up. And also the the shine had so worn from the apple of, of working in movies as a gun for hire uh, and spending most of your time on your ass in the trailer. And it, it um, some of the experiences were phenomenal and some of them were wholly disappointing. And uh, of those 40 movies, and, you know, I, I say 40, by the way, not knowing the exact number, 42. <laughs> Um, we can IMDb it if we Yeah, yeah. But I, I uh, some of those movies, or, or rather, all of those movies, when I read the script and said yes, I saw the magic. And sometimes it's a combination of who the other actors are and the director that makes the script a little better than it actually is. And sometimes it's just a different solid script and all the other elements. But after a while, you start to factor in all the elements, not just is the script the greatest thing ever? Because that just doesn't happen. I mean, I was fortunate to, in that, well, I guess it was 94, I did Usual Suspect. So it was after, oh. I've, I've heard of that movie. Yeah. So that was early on in that nine-year run from 92 to uh, 2000. That I got to read one of the greatest scripts I've still ever read. And it went on to win the Oscar, so I'm not an idiot to boast of such quality but uh it's it 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 taught me how ridiculously rare that sort of thing is and if you treat your career like a porcelain egg and you're too protective of it you'll just end up not working and you'll go away so a lot of times when a civilian forgive the word but i can't find a better one says about any actor or actress, what were they thinking? There's a few answers uh, that come to mind, and, and one of which is the script was really good and the elements were there when they said yes. The other is the editing is the final rewrite and there's no controlling it. And then the other one is that sometimes this is our job. Yeah. And regardless of what your job is, you're you're just you have a batting average no matter what your job no one's flawless their entire career no matter what they do oh uh, that's why i was i was dead serious when i said six six really good movies out of 40 is see i mean six of 40 i mean you're what i learned from those years was i i missed being on stage i missed being in control of all the elements instead of being a gun for hire even though I got to collaborate often during those years and during those movies. 
In fact, in the aforementioned Oscar-winning screenplay for The Usual Suspects, most often, not always, most often, the lines that people quote back to me on the street, the civilians, are lines that I improvised while we were shooting. And um, for that reason, I asked Chris McCoy, the author of the script, to drop off the Oscar at my house <laughs> two days of the year. I don't think I'm asking a lot. No, I think that's... He's yet to deliver, and it's been now 15 years. Maybe he's so, saving them all up. Maybe he wants to get... Uh, give me a full month? <laughs> yeah, a full month or, or a year. So you get it like... Well, 20, at two 20, days a year, 15 years, I'm due a month. <laughs> at least a month. I'm so. just saying. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but anyways, so I did. I was able to collaborate, and I have had directors who said, I trust you um, to not have to say the words verbatim. Try not to change the context. But if something feels more organic coming out of your face than what's written, by all means. And I've been a member of the Writers Guild since 87, and I feel the same way when I write something. Uh, it's all about writing and casting. And then the casting is really getting the people who can take your words to a level you hadn't thought of, in which case, change something as long as it isn't context. So, unless you can even make an argument for context. But I just missed being sort of um, living and dying by my own wits on stage from moment to moment. I missed that and uh, started touring again in 2009. Yeah, I caught you in, I was living in Phoenix at the time, I caught you in Tempe. Tempe Improv. Yeah, yeah, and you even uh, made a visit to the uh, campus of Arizona State. I did. Yeah. What the hell was that for? That was, uh, I, I think that... Some function, wasn't it? There was, I remember you were being escorted by a girl named Whitney that I knew, who worked at the improv, and there was a really good like comedy improv you know, seeing plugged in even just to the campus, like some campus groups. And I think they just managed to snag you for to come in and do a set, actually. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I've, I've clearly I blocked, blocked that from my memory banks. <laughs> it must not have been as great as experience as, uh, <laughs> as you remember. But, um. Well, I, I was getting to enjoy a show, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was great for me. Um, he, he wasn't working. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> I had I had in my defense I probably had a paper to write though. So on the show, no, just some final so to study for so some you, sort of pressure. Not only not only was was it not your job, but but you were blowing off writing a paper because of it. Yeah, well, which students never do. No, they no, never look for excuses. Saying, that's to like blow a bo- off it's like bonus. No, yeah. I'm saying I'm saying the fr- I was all the reason he needed the frisson <laughs> of of getting rid of your of, of neglecting your studies. And, uh, and and that's why you're you're unemployed in Hollywood. There you go. Lesson, kids. Mm. <laughs> Stay in school, do your homework. Yeah, get off the pipe. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I had a question and I can't think of it. That's all right. Uh, oh, well, I'll just start I was packing say, up your shit. It, all right. Well, thanks a lot. Sure. Um, no, uh, I was going to say that's the thing that I, I think since I've seriously started writing and, and performing. Um, like the table read and and writing something down and then and then seeing what the people you're going to get to do your you know your bidding um, things change so much and you're talking about you might sign on to a project and it turns out that I, I think it, like uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil is a perfect example of you know how you could ruin a great movie in the editing and you know and and post production. Um, it, it seems that that's 
I guess if you don't have a lot, if you're a hired gun, so to speak, you don't, it's not as heartbreaking, but, but I'm sure, you know, how, how bad is it to see something like that kind of implode, um, in some of the movies that you've done? How bad is it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you like curse? It's horrible and frustrating beyond description. Yeah. Mm. Um, at some point you just start to understand it as being part and parcel of what you do for a living, but it's never easy or enjoyable. It's torture. Um, yeah, I mean, I've come to love the collaborative part of filmmaking. Um, as I dipped my toe into directing, uh, albeit a web series, it was um, a great experience, and I counted on the expertise of everyone, as I've learned from other directors, to hire great department heads course on a web series all you have are the department heads there's no <laughs> actual departments um, but uh, I've come to appreciate the collaborative team a little bit more also I find that I'm, I'm such a team lover um, I want my team to win so damn bad that every film I've ever worked on even if it ended up a lot less entertaining than it started I will want that team to do well no matter what. And I will not be able to see the forest through the trees. And I will insist that it's wonderful until long past the time that it's crystal clear to everyone but me that it's, <laughs> in fact, not wonderful. You're a booster. And it's funny, yeah. And it's, it, I am a booster, but it really does come down to... I just I wanted the team to do well. I wanted yeah. everyone to benefit from the experience as opposed to just being utterly clueless as to what's good and bad. Mm-hmm. I, it took me a while to recognize that in myself. Or, or worse, or worse, being the the person that tries to torpedo things because they think it's going to be horrible. I mean, not not necessarily in the entertainment business, but I've been in a bunch of other businesses where you always have that one person when things start going bad. They're like, eh, it sucks, and it always. Oh, I find that there's insecurity rampant on the film set. Even when you're shooting, there's subversives left and right as to... um, It's amazing how they come out um, to try to sink everyone's uh, good ship lollipop. Can you you think of any instances... You don't have to name names if you don't want to. If you want to, great. Mm -hmm. But can you think of instances where that happened? Off the top of your head? Were there insecurities rampant? Or like, how did that manifest itself? Like, what was a, a blatant... Well, in the case of Rip Torn, you've got a classic paranoid schizophrenic who, every afternoon after lunch, I'm not sure what was happening at lunch, <laughs> but every afternoon he would pick someone from the Castro crew and insist that there was a conspiracy that that person was out to get him. And if I heard, I was on Nixon's list once, I heard it a million times. <laughs> I was just excited to know Nixon had a list. Um, so, but, you know, he's he's a brilliant, brilliant talent when you can edit around his insanity. Yeah. So there's there's been a lot of um, uh, wannabe uh, successors to that particular crown. <laughs> but he definitely takes the, uh, the crown on that. On that uh, sinking the ship effort. Yeah. Um, I would like to hear about, which I would imagine was a positive experience because of the team involved, uh, Truth or Consequences, mm. New Mexico. 
Wow. That's, you imagine that it would be a good experience because of the members? <laughs> and which members are you thinking of? Well, I know Kiefer Sutherland mm-hmm. acted and directed in it. Yes. He's awesome. Wonderful. Um, but you've got the Vincent Gallo. Yes. Yeah. On the other hand. <laughs> when, you, when you scramble in next Vincent Gallo into the pan... Well, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Are you implying? I don't know how well either of you are familiar with Mr. Gallo. I've seen his work. But he is a uh, self-proclaimed shit disturber. Right, right. It what, it's what makes him happiest. <laughs> and I say that knowing that if he perchance hears this, he is nothing but smiling right now. <laughs> um, he's a world-class shit disturber. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh boy, does he love to push buttons. And I had not seen such an artist at pushing buttons prior to Mr. Gallo. Uh, before or uh, since or, or after, uh, he's the greatest. <laughs> so I'm not sure it was a completely happy set, right. if that's in fact what you had envisioned. Well, but there were some good people on there also. I'm thinking of uh, Kim Dickens. Love her to death. Yeah. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of good, good people on that. And uh, and and I'm not actually suggesting that, that Mr. Gallo is not a good person. <laughs> I happen to like him a lot. I'm a big, big fan. Of his particular form of insanity slash yeah. talent, um, but uh, he he was able to unnerve a few people <laughs> working on the movie to the point where it was not a great experience for everyone. Um, and God bless him because he succeeded in his effort. You know, it wasn't wasn't an accident. It wasn't um, an unfortunate uh, byproduct of chemistry either. It was uh, seek and destroy and beautifully well, executed. If you're going to stir the pot, you might as well be a virtuoso. And he was. <laughs> he was and is. Uh, but that was a great experience. It was Kiefer's, um, I know it was his film directorial debut. I don't mm-hmm. know if he directed anything prior to that. I don't, I don't know if he's directed since then. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe he has. But it was pretty exciting. Maybe know, maybe some episodes of the Beep Boop show. Was what I call 24. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm speculating. Are you a fan of the show? Uh, first couple seasons. I was a late comer. Did you watch it on TV after? Did you catch up and watch it? I caught up on the DVD. Yeah, see, we, we like, powered through. I don't remember if that was before or during Trisha's pregnancy, but there was, a, there was a time where we were watching a lot of TV. Mm-hmm. And we powered through and just hit the wall, like, season three. Mm-hmm. Could not do it. It just got a little, a little ridiculous. For a show that started out pretty ridiculous. It got <laughs> way ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd say I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of the first couple of seasons and then right. tapered off a little bit. Yeah, there were certain, uh, at a certain point where uh, a lot of uh, the old cast got killed off in rapid, oh, spoiler successive alert. fashion. <laughs> I'm not going to say which ones, but I was a little bummed down about that. Mm-hmm. I think I think that might have what got me off uh, the two four. The beep boop show, as I call it. Yeah, but you know, I love Mary Lynn Ricegub, and um, see, I was out before she came in. Okay, and that's an interesting thing. I'm sure you can relate to as in um, though a very funny man and the responsible for a lot of great comedy. You've also been in some very heavy work, very heavy. It's almost the irony of my uh, career path. Quite frankly, because um, I did not set out to be a dramatic actor, nor was I trained, nor do I uh, even believe to this day that that is, in fact, a fact. 
Uh, it happened absolutely by accident. Mm -hmm. That is to say, when you're a stand-up, and I came from San Francisco, sort of risen to the top of the stand-up scene there and moved here with the designs of being in movies. I, I hadn't contemplated doing drama. I thought, well, someday maybe. But um, I felt that my instincts were really quite honed in, in terms of comedy, and I, I felt like I would be... Uh, natural enough in front of the camera having been on stage in front of an audience my whole life up to that point so when very early on in the process I got Barry Levinson's movie Avalon which was a big family saga immigrant uh, coming to America deal um, it was because he loves to put a comedian in every one of his movies and if you actually look at his films it's uncanny uh -huh. um and he was a comedian. He and Craig T. Nelson were a comedy team in the 60s coffeehouse uh, world. And those stories are great. Um, but because I was in that movie, and he had done Rain Man, the movie before, so everyone looked to see what he did next, which was Avalon. Uh, and prior to Fugit Man, it was the first sort of stamp overnight. He's a dramatic actor. Mm -hmm. And it was... Instantly, where did you train in New York? Kind of bullshit. And I was uh, laughing, just hysterical. <laughs> People, I don't really know what I'm doing still. And uh, fortunately for me, Barry hated acting. Hated to see it. The other actors in Avalon were all major theater actors and actresses. They all wanted to rehearse. And he said, no, no, there'll be no rehearsal. You go out and have a few meals together. You'll, you'll be a family. He just loves spontaneity. It's sort of the best part of what he does as a writer director which was perfect for me because I could do spontaneity till everyone passes out <laughs> I got that in spades so my first real acting in a movie happened to be for a director who hated acting which was perfect and it was all just crazy perfect and because I was accepted as a dramatic after after that it's not that I didn't have respect for dramatic acting but I thought well in terms of what I bring to it this is going to be easy because I was so naive to think that, well, all directors must be like this, right? <laughs> uh, so. Not so much, it turns out, right? It turns out they, uh, some of them are very precious with the words and some of them are very um, rehearsal oriented. And there was a moment in A Few Good Men where I have to yell at Demi's character. And, uh. It's still, to this day, one of the hardest uh, days work because I just couldn't get there. And I couldn't get there because to me was such an unbelievably sweet person, a mother hen uh, on the set to everyone, cast and crew, uh, just an angelic person that I related to her so much in, in life that I couldn't make the leap because, again, I had no training uh, I had no real technique I mean during that movie I got to work with J.T. Walsh one of the great character actors of all time and he and also one of the great subversives oh Jesus but he pulled me aside and said you know what you're doing is actually a technique of acting it's called less is more because I kept confessing to him I didn't know what I was doing and he said it's less is more but there's a second half to it and that is nothing is best. So less is more, nothing is best. If you can do nothing in a scene and pull focus, 
you'll win everything. And uh, so, but other than that, I, you know, I, I was unaware of technique, style, training. I was just loose and natural in front of the camera, and it seemed like a real person to people, and that's why I was getting this attention. But in that day's work where I had to yell at to me, or my character had to yell at her character, I was fucking clueless. You just basically had to be a dick to someone in your life. I just For no reason. I just, no and I couldn't. Over yeah. and over and over. And yeah. Rob Reiner, the director, you know, was patient. And, you know, he'd seen actors struggle before. You know, this was his eighth or ninth film or whatever. And so, he, you know, we got through it. And he, I'm sure, cut a performance together in editing. But I had a real tough time getting there. We're just talking about acting. Yeah. <laughs> the end. Uh, I'll bring up one more movie. Um, before I know there's a lot of other Oh, Kiefer. And now I think we... Oh, yeah, From yeah. there we transition. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really have any questions about it. I just... I really like Ricochet. I just really like that movie. Really? Um, you need to see more films. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pretty great story from Ricochet. Uh, a couple. First, uh, Denzel... One of the things about my uh, character acting career in movies is that I've got a chance to work with some of the great leading actors and actresses of our time. I mean, the list is embarrassing. From De Niro to Walter Matthau to... I mean, it's it's ridiculous, literally. Um, and Denzel is the only one where in the movie our characters were best friends and he called me having not met prior... I get a call out of the blue, total stranger. Hey, it's Denzel. No assistant, no this, no that. Just Denzel got my number, called me up. This is before caller ID. I just answered the phone. Hello. Hey, it's Denzel. Listen, we're supposed to play best friends in this movie. I thought maybe we should go have a meal. And it was the first time many of these um, leading men or women uh, made that effort. And we went out and had a meal for three hours and told each other life stories. And by the time we got to the set, we had a, a history. Um, so that really stayed with me um, all these years. And then the other amazing thing was, because it was a Joel Silver movie, no one dies of natural causes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, spoiler alert, uh, my character is uh, shot to death by John Lithgow. And because it's Joel Silver, I had to be squibbed for the first time. <laughs> Not just any squib, mind you, but six in the front and four out the back. Nice. Yeah. Ten squibs. Right. Uh, usually, for those listening, it's one. <laughs> so, these were ten. So, the funny story, hopefully, was... Um, <laughs> The stunt guy comes to me one day and says, okay, uh, we're going to squib you. Uh, have you. You've been squibbed before, right? And I said, no. And he said, oh, Jesus. Larry! And he calls Larry over, and Larry comes over, and, and he says to Larry, this guy's never been squibbed. And Larry says, you've never been squibbed? And I said, no. And Larry says, Frank! <laughs> Eventually, there are six guys standing around me, all experts, as to what it's going to feel like <laughs> when I get... When I take the hits, right? When and you it, have tiny, when you have tiny explosions go off on your yes, chest and back, yeah. Because for for those of you listening who may not know what a squib is, it is a tiny explosive packet which propels 
blood, thick blood and cloth to simulate a gunshot wound, let us say. As it's happening, yeah. <clears throat> and they're wired, and you there are, are there's a, a string of wires, in my case, ten wires going down <laughs> my wardrobe, down my ankle, and then strung behind me, connected to someone's board, who's going to ultimately flip the switch. Um... So before they put on the special rig, these six guys are surrounding me, explaining with their six different variations of a rabbit punch to my chest <laughs> to demonstrate what the squibs are going to feel like. <laughs> and boy, did they get me off the turnip truck because I, to this day, don't know if they were, if this was a fun routine that they were having at my expense that they do with every foolish actor who answers that question the way I did. No, I've never been squirted. Um, so they, uh, it's going to feel like this. <clears throat> oh, no, it's going to feel like this. <clears throat> uh. So then the head guy, head uh, uh, stunt coordinator says, all right, let me see what you're going to do when you take the hits. So I said, well, I've never really been shot to death before, so <laughs> I think I'll do something like this. And he goes, well, don't do that. It looks like you're dancing. <laughs> So I said, all right. Because I, I just went with that move we see yeah, in the yeah. movies, you know? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I said, don't do that. It looks like you're dancing. And he said, and also, it's going to be raining in the scene. We have the rain machines on. So uh, Lithgow's going to shoot you from the second story fire escape. Uh, but don't look up at him when the shots come because you'll get rain in your eyes and you won't be able to see. And so that'll be bad. So I said, okay, don't look up. Don't dance. <laughs> and he said, and also... Um, we're going to give you these earplugs because this, these 10 squibs are going to be loud. <laughs> so I said, okay, uh, don't dance, don't look up, and can't hear. Uh, anything else? Uh, and he said, yeah, no, you'll be fine. <laughs> and so, and, oh, he said, we only have so many of these rigs. We got, in fact, we only have two. You'll have two shots at this. No pressure. I've never been squibbed. I have six different versions of what it's going to feel like in my chest. I can't see because of the rain. When we shoot it, I literally cannot see because of the rain. I cannot hear because of the earplugs. So I can't feel, and I can't hear, and I can't see. I'm uh, basically a greased-up deaf guy. And... Uh, I still do exactly what I remember Jimmy Cagney doing. I'm sure I was dancing, but they used the first tape, the first of the two that's in the movie. Um, and uh, it was the, one of the most surreal moments in, in my entire film. I'm trying to think of how, how further, much further they could have handicapped you. And the only thing I can think of is, like, and you have to hold these buckets filled with concrete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that you know what? There was one I left out. You're right. Keep your arms away from your sides. <laughs> because the because the Keep your go. arms yes. away from your sides uh -huh. because uh, you can't. Well, another reason not to look down. Yeah. Can't look up. I forgot two things. Can't look up. Can't look down because you'll get squib in your eyes. And keep your arms away. So there were two more. I better remember the story better. Yeah. There were two more things not to do. Don't look up. Don't look down. Keep your arms aside. Uh, don't dance. And uh, you won't feel a fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> what would it feel like? It was fantastic. I felt nothing. 
Oh, really? I literally felt nothing. Was it like a they're hard show? Yeah, hard show. It's so well that I, that's the only reason I have to think that these guys were putting me on. Oh, yeah. yeah. There, there was the shelf stretcher. Yeah. You go find a shelf stretcher. Yeah. Yeah. But I recall that your character uh, gets off a one-liner before he croaks, doesn't he? I have a really pathetic line in the movie as I die in Denzel Washington's arms. Um, how many can say that? <laughs> I just realized. I don't know. Does somebody die in his arms in Unstoppable? I haven't seen it. I'm sure someone has died in his arms. Um, but I say to him, we I don't remember what Lithgow's character's name was. Let's say Smith. But in this point in the story, we think Smith is dead. He's faked his own death or something. Right, right. And I say something to the effect of, uh, how could it be Smith? How could he... Uh, I knew it was Smith. I knew, he ha- I knew he had to be alive. Otherwise, how else could he have killed me? That's right. Yeah. Something unbelievably <laughs> yeah, lame it, like that. I believe you said it with a spurt, too. And then you died. And then I died. And it was perfect. Yeah, and I had, to, I had to do that dying voice. Uh, of course, it had to be him. Otherwise, how could he have killed me? He had to have been alive. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> uh, wow. They don't. They don't make them like that anymore. Hey. They don't. And there's a reason. <laughs> They're just not. Good. But that was the first. That Russell Mulcahy, the name of the director. What else did he direct? Exactly. <laughs> no, no, he actually did direct something. No, he, he directed something pretty big just before it. And then, oh, maybe that's And then something, something possibly shortly thereafter, and then... Who could I am to do that? so much. But Ice-T. He's been in a lot of stuff. TV's Ice-T. Yeah. Television's Ice-T, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said to T, yes. In fact, he, uh, when we shot on location, there were more girls outside his trailer than Denzel. Wow. Yep. Actually, that probably doesn't happen anymore. Not so much. But yeah, I remember the, when I first moved to L.A. and one of the first um, things I worked on was a documentary about gangsters, mm-hmm. gangstas. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in Watts and I went by those towers. The Watts Towers? I think of them as the Ricochet Towers. Interesting. Yeah, they were a big part oh, of the finale. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, I, I seem to remember there was a lot of climbing. Yeah, and uh, electrocution. Oh, does it get struck by lightning? By the towers. Impaling. Oh, is yes, it? yes. Was, was there any electrocution in that, though? Or am I thinking of it? It's a completely different movie, maybe. Thinking, you've just missed a mixed Frankenstein. You've done a little mashup there. <laughs> the movie Frankenstein and Ricochet. I think you're thinking of Buckaroo Bonsai. Okay. And or Buckaroo Bonsai. John Lithgow. Because mm-hmm. I, was, I was trying to think if that was the first time I remember Lithgow playing a villain, but he played one in Buckaroo Bonsai. Because he played in Dexter, he was... You remember that part where John Lithgow... Uh, I was going to make a Frankenstein joke. Does he throw the baby in the water, Frankenstein, at some point? I think that little happens. Little girl. Little yeah, little girl. But that gets cut out in some versions uh-huh. of, of Frankenstein. Right. To make which it more which most of the versions I watched, most of the versions I watched when I was a kid did not have that. And then when I saw Young Frankenstein, where they did the parody of it, I didn't understand that for years. Yeah. For years. Gene Hackman is the blind guy. Best, best thing ever. And also... Um, the chasm between that brilliant comedic performance of Hackman's to his historically brilliant comedic performance in the Royal Panama. Uh, the chasm between those two performances makes no sense to me. Because <laughs> he's a brilliant comedian and no one knows it. No one has taken oh, advantage of it. Yeah, that's the... I mean, my, my, my buddy Vic and I were at Thanksgiving. 
because we had cigars and I but and for a special treat cigars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, every every time we get together, that that comes up. You know. Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, Royal Tenenbaums. No, no. <laughs> Gene Hackman is the blind hermit. Okay. Off the big deaf mute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, well. Young Frankenstein is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mine too. Yeah. I think it's a it's a toss up between. Uh, well, for, it's it's definitely uh, for comedies. It's Young Frankenstein and, and Doctor Strangelove, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Young Frankenstein wins by by a hair on that one. Yeah. See, I'm I'm of just a slightly younger generation than you two gentlemen. So for me, Mel Brooks was Spaceballs. Oh yeah, and um, that would be my girlfriend's take on it as well. Yeah, yeah. Although she loves Young Frankenstein. Yeah, but yeah, that's it's like the Kendall Dick. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, that is kind of a litmus test too. Mm-hmm. That's it's like if you can't grok. The Young Frankenstein or the Blazing Saddles, kind of like just I don't talk to you very well. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm, I'm in a reverie now. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, life in the Bay Area. All right. Um, I know that you spent a lot of time in San Francisco and San Jose as well. Now, yeah, I was raised, I'm born in San Francisco, and then very, very young family moved to the promise of the suburbs of San Jose, where I yeah. was raised, and then moved back to the city when I was 20 to pursue stand-up comedy full time. Yeah. Now, I just came from there. My wife, uh, her family are from San Jose, specifically Campbell, uh-huh. is where uh, we had our Thanksgiving. Um, I, I really like that town mm-hmm. it's um I find neat little things to do there and places to go oh yeah it's so different from San Francisco obviously um it really is yeah. it's much more of a suburb yeah than a city what um did it have any influence on on how you honed your comedy I mean were, were you just biding your time like I gotta get to San Francisco I gotta start well gotta it, put the work in. it had a great influence in that there were no comedy clubs so I didn't have the luxury of, of uh, comrades, first of all. Uh, nor did I have the luxury of a home turf, a home stage, a venue. I would have to go on in between rock and roll bands when they took a break. Yeah. Which <laughs> may be one of the single worst times for anyone to take stage to speak. Right. The band's been playing their guts out very, very loudly. And it is really the first time that the male and female members of the audience have a chance to speak to each other. And it's actually a long-standing tradition where this is the time where guys will try to buy girls drinks and girls will wait for guys to buy them drinks. I'm not talking about theaters. I'm talking about bars. Mm-hmm. When I say rock and roll band. I mean bars with little stages. Very little. Yeah. There are less than 100 people. That's it. So it's just painfully obvious to me and to everyone there when I'm talking that really three or four people are listening. And if you can survive that, my friend, bring it. And so I definitely benefited, without knowing it, 
only in retrospect, benefited greatly from that. So that by the time I got to San Francisco when I was 20, I mean, I started doing stand-up in, in clubs when I was 17. So those three years, by the time I got to San Francisco when I was 20, guys 10 years older than me were like, holy shit, kind of thing. It wasn't quite my 10,000 hours of Hamburg. Uh, is that where the Beatles played the cave? In Hamburg, I thought. Hours? Well, the 10,000 hours refers to... Uh, yeah, the, the how, how long it takes you to get... Yeah, yeah. the outlier <clears throat> book. But I think it was Hamburg. I'm pretty sure it was Hamburg yeah, where the Beatles correct. went. And because of that, people believed that they put in their 10,000 hours. And, uh, so those three years for me... Uh, prepared me, I think, for... By the time I got to the warm, warm bosom of the stand-up comedy community of San Francisco, I was somehow a seasoned young gun. Uh, like, I remember one of my mentors early, almost in the beginning, was a guy named Marty Cohen, who was very slick in his, in his um, presentation. But everyone looked up to him. Because uh, his stage presence was just ridiculous. And he said to me very early on after a show, he said, you know, when your material catches up with your stage presence, you're going to absolutely destroy it. Uh, and I didn't really know what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, because when I started out, I was just doing impersonations. There was no, I didn't really have my own voice on stage. Um, so... But I had this ridiculous confidence on stage that um, I'm sure was masking some form of insecurity. But I, I really suffered from Hey, Look at Me disease so early in my life that by the time I was even 17 and got on stage, I had already been performing in front of an audience for since I was 10, um, doing an act uh, all through school, you know, Every function at school, father-daughter, dinner dance, whatever it was, folk festival, I was the go-to guy in our school. Uh, becoming class clown in the yearbook was was one of the greatest fait accomplis of my <laughs> life. It was so ridiculous. Uh, um, so I, I think that that's probably the impact that it had, more so than any sort of cultural... Right. But San Francisco is a great comedy town. It's really, I mean, yeah. the shows that I've done up there have been, compared to the stuff that I've done in Los Angeles, where... No comparison. Yeah, no, none whatsoever. No. I in mean, fact, the, the hardest thing for a lot of guys is to leave, because it's so nurturing. It's one of the most nurturing places for stand-up and they laugh. comedy in existence. And they laugh. I mean, that's the thing, is... is There's no judgment. Yeah. People actually pay money to sit in an audience and be entertained. That's the huge difference. <laughs> Here they they uh, they think they are at the Colosseum in, in yeah. ancient Rome. I think that's a that's and they pay their admission to stick their thumb right. down. Uh, yeah, but the the experience that I've had here in L.A., especially when you're starting out, is it's it's about as bad as the as as doing shows at a, at a, at a rock show. But it's all open mics and it's all. You know the same forty comics that mm. are trying to get five minutes of stage time, and, right? And if you get a laugh, 
I mean, I was, <laughs> I got like, I got chuckles at an open mic, and and the MC said, uh, "You just got the open mic equivalent of a standing ovation," <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. I mean, it's like I, I actually heard people laugh, and I was like, mm. I, it threw me off because mm. I just expected to get up there and do my time, right? You know, but words come out of my mouth and practice those. Um, but yeah. the first show that I did up in San, in San Francisco, it was like, I felt like a superstar. Like a superstar because they everybody and it was an open mic too, and and well, there's been an annual tradition there. I don't know how many years, but it's got to be at least thirty. Uh, called Comedy Celebration Day in Golden Gate Park, and for thirty years, anywhere from fifteen to forty thousand people gather for a free show in the park, and I can't imagine. 2,000 people showing to a free po- uh, show here. In Maybe if there was free booze. Los Angeles. Yeah. Maybe if you gave out free booze. Then you'd have a riot afterwards. Mm-hmm. I'd go to that. Riot? Who <laughs> <laughs> <I> wouldn't? <laughs> it's been a while since I've turned over a car and burned it. <laughs> free booze never leads to anything good. Yeah. This is true. Unless your goal is anarchy. Or 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 at like at a wedding, open bar at a wedding. So you, your your goal is like again maudlin. It never ends well, <clears throat> but at least it usually ends less violently. Usually, unless it's an Irish Actually, wedding. wedding. I was just gonna say <laughs> <laughs> or Scottish, right, right. But you could get maudlin though. It's flip coin. It really is flip coin. Or working class British, right? <laughs> Oi. <laughs> We were right. just, why were we talking about, Gene, you and I, we were talking about working class British, um, just, uh... Oh, because we were, Venice, we were, we, we got here a little early, and so we, we took the drive that's down. That's right, yeah, we did a little tour around through the neighborhood. We, we started out talking about, I lived in Detroit for a while, and how, uh, Brody was, why don't they do stuff with those abandoned buildings? And I'm like, because there's no reason, because why live in Detroit? There's nothing there. The weather's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and... The, and I said, they, they gotta have a really great punk scene, though. Right. If you're punk rock and growing <clears throat> up in, in Detroit, that's some good that's some good anger and some good music. Yeah, I would I would say if if if, if there are people there that aren't you, you know cannibals living <laughs> underground in the ruins of whatever's left there, it was bad when I was there in the mid '80s, and I can't imagine it now. Yeah, it's got to be like you know Beirut after a few you know rocket attacks. It's the new murder capital. Again, I'm surprised there are people left to kill each other. Yeah. Wow. 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 Yeah, I've, I've heard. Never going I've, back there. <laughs> I've heard that literally the dogs have taken over the city, like packs of wild dogs running around. What does not surprise me? Yeah. What does not surprise? Me? Well, that's a thank you, Brody, for bringing us down. <laughs> yeah. Nice work. The music on this episode is by the band Avail. From Richmond, Virginia. The song is Suspicious Minds. It was originally made a hit by Elvis Presley. The band Avail put out an album in 1998 on Lookout Records called Over the James. It was re-released in 2006 by Jade Tree Records, and one of the bonus tracks was this cover. And now let's rejoin the conversation with Kevin Pollock. I asked him how the experience of growing up in suburban San Jose honing his craft in the supportive atmosphere of San Francisco and then taking his act down on the harsh road informed his comic sensibilities. There's no place like the road to 
find out what kind of act you ultimately want to do. Um, Steve Martin spoke about it um, perfectly and uh, with tremendous insight in his you know, biography, born standing up in terms of filling in a lot of gaps people had about his particular experience. But it's, it's typical, his experience. That is to say, you, you venture out on the road and it is only out there that you find out what kind of performer you want to be, what kind of performer you're going to be, and what, what ultimately your act is. It, it isn't while being coddled by a loving audience in San Francisco or rock bars in San Jose. It is comedy clubs where people have paid a price to see comedians, but from city to city, from town to town, getting getting um, that education is... So it's almost... Uh, it, it overrides everything that you may have been building and everything that fed your uh, take on life comedically. Mine was taken from studying the greats in their, from their comedy albums from my youth, be it Bill Cosby or, or um, George Carlin, or more Carlin than Pryor. Because um, I, I, as brilliant as Car uh, Pryor clearly was, uh, I had no connection to his life that he talked about. I couldn't mm -hmm. relate to any of it. So it was such a personal experience that I was too young to benefit from his unabashed uh, delivery and style and rhythm. All I heard was almost instant guilt that I hadn't suffered through anything like he had. <laughs> and so because of that, I was unable to um, embrace it and celebrate it the way I, I was able to many, many years later. So my upbringing was so uh, kind of a middle class that my experience was uh, much more easily related. And also I came of age when Cheech and Chong kind of exploded. Mm -hmm. When I um, was graduating high school and starting to smoke pot every day, Cheech and Chong were taking over the world. Right. So they and George Carlin, you know, and then you break through that um, and start to get on stage and really find your voice. So your influences are one thing. Woody Allen was a huge, huge influence. Uh, Albert Brooks, Steve Martin. Um, but it isn't until you get on stage and put in your 10,000 hours that you find your voice and a style. Yeah. And you had a different, um, you had a different set of influences, well not influences, how has comedy changed for you, or how you see it, when you were coming up, and you were making your way, and you had those comedy albums to look at, mm -hmm. and um, I'm trying to do some quick math in my head here as far as um, like how long Saturday Night Live had been on the air. Well, I started out really about 30 years ago. 
Well, Saturday Night Live, I think, is in their 36th Yeah, season? so they were just coming. 74, 75, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. But I thought of that because of, of, of Carlin, <clears throat> George Carlin, I'm just, you know, uh, he's hosting the first one. And Cheech and Chong, somebody start, start, start starting out today, the same age you were when you started out. The landscape is so different. You have podcasts, you have web series, you have... Um, well, just YouTube alone, yeah. quite honestly, in the last five years, giving 10-year-olds or young adults an opportunity to experiment and fail and learn um, instantly. Yeah, it's the real democratization <laughs> of comedy. Yeah. So it's got, it's even beyond the comedy club scene, the alternative scene that's been thriving for the last 10 years. It's beyond the open mics. It's beyond that. Um, and it's not just about what Steven Spielberg would have done with YouTube, you know, these young filmmakers. It is literally about uh, experimenting with your sense of humor mm-hmm. in across all media. And podcasts is another example of, I think Andy Warhol was very, very close. I think in the future everyone will have their own podcast. <laughs> everyone will have 15,000 minutes. Everyone will have fifteen thousand hits, but I because I, I was I when, when you were uh, talking about that I totally had a flashback to when I was I don't know like ten or eleven. And I used to record because the Steve Martin thing too. Uh, I used to record on my little push the buttons, you know, mm-hmm. do the little comedy things, and yeah. I can't one one I cannot possibly imagine putting those up <clears throat> for anyone to see ever in any form <laughs> ever I can't imagine having the cojones as a 10 or 11 year old to do that well you don't until you realize everyone else is doing it I think that's yeah, why yeah, yeah, YouTube yeah. has I, created all of but if that's the, that's totally the difference is is we have a generation of, of, of kids who, who the internet's their playground yes and just like you would do you don't have to sit so, in the basement yeah. or the attic and create voices or, or, or do it for two for two of your friends at the playground I used to Learn a new impression by putting it on my um, outgoing message on my voice answering machine. You know, it's one of the first. Albert Brooks, I think, was one of the first ones I remember the biggest impact. Hi, Kevin's not here. It's Albert. Listen, uh, he's not here. Call back later. Leave a number. I don't. I don't know how this works. I'm going to go lie down. I'm nauseous. Um, and then I was I just moved to LA when I put that message on my machine and I started getting all these calls and hangouts uh-huh. people just listening to the message yeah, it took a while until I realized oh, they're just listening to the message and hanging up and after about 25 of these hangups someone leaves a message and it's hi this is Rob Reiner you don't know me but I grew up with Albert he's one of my best friends and that is the ridiculously great Albert Brooks and it's not just Albert Performing in movies or stand-up, that's him around the house. It's just ridiculous. And he hangs up. And I was too awestruck to pick up the phone. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> not knowing, clearly, wasn't able to look into the future to know how, what an impact he would have ultimately on my career. Did you, did you mention that to him? When you, Later. You oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I just come to L.A. and it's it's... it's you know that experience of going from middle school to high school or high school to college and starting over? Yeah. It's that times a million when you come from the coddling of San Francisco to the fuck you of Los Angeles where you have no friends and, and 
literally, it's uncanny. And uh, so I, I, I just remember being in this little hubble of the studio apartment. I think it was a converted garage, actually. And uh, <laughs> and and listening to Rob, uh, Rob Reiner on the machine, and I would play it back. I don't know a hundred times. And then I, but I kept getting more calls and hanging up. And after about an hour and a half later, I get another, someone else finally leaves a message. Hi, this is Carl Reiner. <laughs> um, now, at this point, enough time has gone by that I'm ready to talk to a writer. <laughs> so I dive. Any writer will do. Yeah. I dive at the phone and I pick it up and he says, oh, hi. Hi, this is Carl Reiner. Um, um, uh, my son, Rob, uh, I guess he called you. Um, he, he actually found out about it from me. Uh, and I, I'm business partners with um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's manager. And uh, I guess Jerry had heard it, called his manager, and then his manager called me. <laughs> and I called Rob and told him to listen to it. And Rob actually called Albert. And Albert called your machine, listened to it, didn't leave a message. <laughs> Called Rob right back and said, is that me, Rob? Really? Is that what you hear? It sounds like my Uncle Zeke. <laughs> uh, so that's how I, I, I would learn a new impression and sort of experiment. Even, uh, I think, before I really hit the road. And I didn't really hit the road so much when I was coming up in San Francisco. Because, again, it was, you could get on almost any night right. and there was so many clubs and, and there was so much support that there wasn't a sense of and also this sort of protective coating of don't leave the, the, the town and and uh, there's nothing but the, horrible yeah. wasteland yeah blowing yeah. tumbleweeds and bleached cow skulls yeah no one will no one will love you like we will I mean it really is an, an absurd uh, overly protective mother mm. of a town and a, and a comedy community so when I got to LA, I, I started. Everyone said we got to do the road. In fact, the only way to afford living in Los Angeles is to leave Los Angeles and make a living in stand-up, <laughs> which was in fact true. Yeah. So just get the cheapest, shittiest apartment you can, and then yeah. you know send rent checks back. Yeah. yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. See, my experience, my experience is kind of you had like the graduating to the harsh realities of Los Angeles. I had like being lifted out of the the torturous oubliette into what what is this place people laugh and and buy you drinks and and give you give you notes and you know it's like i i you know i've met a lot of good people down here in la really funny but but i would say that 80 percent of them have the same face when you do when you do an open mic here you know and they're they're or they're writing notes on their own stuff it's just so different up there so i could i could totally see why you you know Sink into the pillowy cloud. Yeah, <laughs> and just, but amazing acts have, yeah. have come out of there. I mean, the graduating class behind me—I was around the same time as Dana Carvey and Bobby Slayton—and the graduating class after us was Paula Poundstone, Ellen DeGeneres, Jake Johansson, yeah. um, Robbie Schneider, uh, um, Goldthwait. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. And then the class after them, Paula Tonkins, Sarah Silverman, Patton Oswalt. I mean, they were, it's just absurd, the waves. And before me and Dana, you know, there was um, the ridiculous historical, uh, going back to 
spacing. We can cut. We can cut this part. I'm spacing on his we'll name. Make it look seamless. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, Who are you talking, Lenny Bruce? Yeah, or? Lenny Bruce okay. and, and the Purple Onion and Hungry Eye and mm-hmm. those days in the '50s, and then they begat the '60s with the Smothers Brothers and yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And the next generation after them. So, who's who? Uh, who, who do you like now? I feel like I feel like a like a like a you know a boxing tout. <laughs> who do you like? Who do you like is coming up? Uh, I don't know about coming up. Actually, <laughs> I mean. I I just sort of um, Im- woke up to the alternative stand-up scene um, only within the last probably five years. It's and a good five years, though. An amazing five years. Yeah. But I'm only really aware of um, the sort of kings of the castle, like Paul F. Tompkins and Patton and, um, and Sarah and... Uh, Greg Proops, I think, yeah. is incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, although the East Coast, you know, Zach Galifianakis is probably one of the great uh, comics I've seen on stage. Um, and and not from a sense of, uh, of even performing stand-up, clearly, because he sits at the piano... And basically reads a series of inner or non-connected uh, abstract thoughts. Um, but uh, I, Paul F. is one of the um, most magical and endearing stand-up acts who break the one cardinal rule for me, which is not only what I was raised by, but also what I what I honed as my own personal taste, which is the worst thing you can do on stage is to laugh at your own material. Yep. And uh, Paul F. Uh, organically breaks himself up on stage. He's delighted by his act. Yeah, well, he's... <laughs> uh, but it's funny, and, and, and with, good reason, with good reason. You know what, that, that's not a bad overview, but <clears> I will I will be so bold, if not obnoxious, as to make a adjustment and or correction, which I think takes all the onus off. Oh, he is delighted by what comes out of him. Yes, yes. Because it is in an act. No, no, no. I, 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 I use I use act as the broad the doing of business on stage. Yeah, to me, an act is something that's rehearsed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Set. Not his. He's not delighted by his set. He's he's his his discovery. His journey of magical discovery, if you want to be more. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's just it for me. Is his inhibition and ability to be present. Yeah, yeah. That's the part that I find so magically delicious and endearing. Yeah is to have a performer on stage that is that present. And by that, of course, I mean most performers on stage are thinking about anything else, anything else other than what they're actually saying. Yeah. Mostly they're thinking about what they're going to say next. Yeah. Uh, we, we need to get ahead of the audience and stay ahead of the audience. And it is nearly impossible in one's training to be in the moment. Uh, and it is he has the most organic, natural ease of being in the moment, and it's all it, whether it's all stream of consciousness or not. Uh, it's a, it's absolutely endearing how he'll honestly break himself. Up. He's he's having the most fun of anyone in the room. That's how I feel when I go see a show. He, you know, I'm having a great time, and he's having a slightly better time than me. 
But I will tell you, while that is true, it is the honesty behind it that makes it a gazillion times more powerful Agreed. and potent because we were all trained in my generation, if not those after me, to represent that on stage. Mm-hmm. If you're not having fun on stage, yes. no one will. They look to you for a few things within the first 30 seconds of your act. They want to know that they're in capable hands. Right. Dear God, don't suck. I don't need the uncomfortable feeling of another <laughs> comic who sucks. <laughs> so in the first 30 seconds, make yeah. me feel like I'm in the hands of a master. Yeah. That would be great. And then the other part is, I've got to really believe that you're having a great time up there. Don't make it seem by rote. Don't make it seem rehearsed. Don't make it seem anything other than magical for you. So what happens is, is you build that into your act. Yeah. You build that into your stage persona sure. if you're smart. And if you want to uh, use these skills that have been taught for generations. Um, consequently, very few people are allowed to be as spontaneous, silly, and present as Paul F. is. Right. And it's a well, they're doing a mockery of that. Yeah, it's safer. Yeah, I remember seeing Janine Garofalo early on and thinking, you know, her edge is a a magic bubble of security that she's protecting herself from people who may not like what she's saying. Mm-hmm. She's appearing to not give a shit. She's appearing to be edgier than everyone else. She's appearing to be. Um, I don't give a fuck. Yeah, and yeah. in fact, she couldn't be more the opposite of that. Yeah. Um, and while she was incredibly smart, clever, and entertaining on stage, I didn't... Um, I, I could see an act. I could see an effort. Right. A persona. A persona. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Paul F. is 100% free on stage yeah. and more present than anyone I, I, in, in recent memory. Yeah, I, I think I think having done stand up, it, it it's 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 obvious if you know what what an act is, <laughs> you know. And yeah, I, I think if you're as you know just a civilian in the audience, you're just going to see a funny show where Paul does, you know, some funny voices and tells some jokes and some stories. And yeah, is, no, is a raconteur. We're playing the seventh level of Spock chess here when we talk about in these. <laughs> right, right. Your average civilian doesn't care about any of this. But they the just awesome. want to be entertained. But that's why it's a supernova entertainment because yeah. you, you, because he is, you know, he is delighted and it's it, and it's even if you're just enjoying it on a superficial level, it's yeah. it's a fantastic show. Yeah. You know. And you can just get up there and do silly things. And, yeah. And Eddie Izzard is actually one of the great all-time great great greats. Yeah. Um, in terms of Literally going on stage and talking about a, a moment in history or moments in history. And what he d- defines, which is the ultimate for me, is his point of view. It's, at the end of the day, that's all a comedian can represent is their own particular point of view. And, and Eddie was one of the first guys to, to in my mind... Um, fully realize that description, which is, well, I've got my point of view, so now I can talk about anything. And in fact, I remember early in, in, in one's education, people saying, well, what do you draw your material from? And learning that if you develop a strong enough comedic point of view, then then everything is material. Mm-hmm. Every 
every subject matter. Well, people, people, you know, uh, it, it, it's kind of become the Seinfeld's the stereotype with the, you know, what is up with socks? What's up with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that but of. it's not just observational. Right, right, right. I mean to say, I could talk about these reading glasses because I have a, such a strong comedic point of view. Right. I'm saying in theory. I don't mean in, in no, reality. No, I want you to give me Because I don't have any material so, on give me, these glasses. Give me five minutes on the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in theory. So, Eddie said, well, I've got such a strong comedic point of view. I'll go on and talk about world history. Yeah. A subject that for most people is uh, well, it's the boring as shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he'll just go through... Just the four, early 1400s. Yeah. And he'll draw out all these facts and things that happen, and then literally, not too different from Seinfeld, say, what is the deal with all the beheading? Yeah. No, agreed, agreed. Eddie Izzard's another one of my favorite. Uh, I will go see Eddie Izzard when he's in town, or, or I will pay good money to go see an Eddie Izzard. That's, that's the... For me, the acid test. It's one of my favorite uh, interviews on my uh, little chat show. Is Absolutely. You, uh, your, your, was him going two hours on nothing. <laughs> Pretty great. But on something. That's the thing. He can he can make... Riveting. He can make it, yeah. He can make anything amusing and amazing. You can find us on the internet at shakytownradio.com. You can Twitter us at at shakytownradio. You can like us on Facebook at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash shakytownradio. Send us an email at shakytownradio at gmail.com or call us on the Shakytown Radio hotline at 626-66-SHAKE. That's 667-4253. That's the same number. This is Lauren Weedman, and you are listening to the Shakytown Radio Hour. So, that's a good segue to the chat show. All right. How much do you love it? Well, uh, because it's all... Um, a, a shocking revelation at some point in terms of careful what you wish or experimenting gone uh, awry in, in the sense that it took on its own life and in a way it took over hours. Um, I've never had a regular weekly thing that lasted a year and a half. I mean, even when I did stand-up on a regular basis, I never toured for a long period of time. I would go out a weekend here, a weekend there. At most, I would do three weekends of the month, but even that was rare, and I always came home in between. But I've just never had, well, every Sunday afternoon, you're going to do this thing. What are you talking about? I mean, if you said you wanted to hire me to do something every Sunday for the next couple of years, I'd say, no, absolutely not. <laughs> right. I can't give myself to that. So that aspect of it has been a daunting education in care for what you wish. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, it's been uh, shockingly wonderful and, and uh, fun and always surprising and uh, I can't believe that it's a thing. I can't believe that it's, it's an actually a thing. How much have you personally embraced um, the technological aspect of it? Do you find yourself pretty tech savvy, or uh, I go I go crawling from one week to the next into how we do it. 
uh, it's funny. I, I could not speak intelligently about anything to do with the technical side when I started uh, over a year and a half ago. And it seems like every week, every month, I learn one more thing. And just when I think I know how it works, <laughs> two guys who work for the show or woman will get into a conversation about a tech-related issue, and I will be clueless in four seconds. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would say that I, I learn a little something every week, and then uh, it's kind of one step forward, two steps back. Um, it's like Paul Abdul and the uh, MC Scat Cat. Yeah. Right. And uh, similarly, I would say it's <laughs> on a need-to-care basis. Yeah. Right. right. Um, I got into new media as uh, an incredibly exciting uh, new opportunity and landscape where I was told and have now experienced and can confirm other than stand-up comedy, I have found no other place for abject creative control and freedom. Um, and that part alone is exhilarating beyond description. Yeah, agreed. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're doing this is, is it's basically us yeah. talking to people that we find interesting. And, you know, it's like, okay, sign me up. And every now and then you'll land a whale, we call it. That would be the case of casino when they bring in the Asian guy in the yep. private jet and to try to keep him there. <laughs> the penguin room. The yeah. Penguin room. I refer to him as the whale. So I, I grew where I am potentially a whale for you, <laughs> Absolutely. I have my own. Like we just landed um, Sugar Ray Leonard and Billy Bob Thornton. So I'm shitting myself. We, we were talking about exactly that bowel loosening feeling on the way over. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's... It's not about star fucking, which has been a tremendous tradition that all the studios and networks have mastered uh, over the centuries, dating back to the days when Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood were under contract, one of the last few superstars of their generation to be under contract by a studio at the same time. Um, but even more than getting out from under uh, any sort of system, you know, as a creative person who's doing what you guys are and what I'm doing with the chat show, you you want to bring not just interesting people to the microphone every time, but you want to uh, raise the level of excitement every now and then. So that's the thing for me. Is it doesn't have to be about landing the whale. In fact, it should never be about Oh yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, you're not you're not doing what you want to do. You're playing a game. But when you do land a whale, if it's infrequent, then it's unbelievably exciting because it, sometimes it'll happen with little to no effort. Certainly, sitting here in my dining room, the little to no effort comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, I think that's true. Because, and I've given it a lot of thought. Because we've had offers. We've had offers from, you know, publicists like, hey, do you want to talk to this person? And I'm like, I know, don't have a lot to say. I mean, and that's not their fault or, or the person they're offering's fault. But it's like, if I can't think of something to talk about, uh, it's not something that I want to do. And I've, I really, Brody and I have kind of talked about it. It's like, this is, and one of the big thrusts of the show is the do-it-yourself aspect of creativity that's available now. And it has been 
somewhat in like the music scene you could always pick up a guitar and busk or whatever but now and you know in comedy you know you go do open mics or you could find a bar that would let you mm -hmm. you know the, the book a set yeah. or some folks but this is just like completely a different animal entirely you've touched on a very new uh, I don't want to use the word problem but it's the one that comes to mind first a very new hurdle to overcome um, of the careful what you wish uh, through line very early on we had a few publicists offering up some talent a couple of really big names who I, I passed on you know, I realize it. Perhaps it's getting a little chilly. <laughs> but suddenly it's 40 degrees outside. Uh, <laughs> that's how long we've been at it. People only started breaking day. It's good. Um, I don't want to name any names, Dane Cook, but I didn't have any... <laughs> I didn't have any... Uh, it wasn't that... I think you're, you're being diplomatic. I think the truth is, for all of us, we have the luxury, unlike a so-called talk show, mm -hmm. be it nightly, Right. We had the luxury of inviting guests on that we're interested in. So could I do research on someone that I'm not interested in and conduct uh, an equally yeah. enjoyable Absolutely. interview? Yeah. And I have, actually. Uh, after doing it, we're, um, I think we're in the 90s, the low 90s now, a number of uh, interviews we've done. Um, there have been a few that I... Um, we're interested in, but um, the, to a much less degree, mm -hmm. uh, it's fair to say. We, we've yet to have anyone on that I had no interest in. Right. But I have to assume that with longevity and more success, that's inevitable. Right. Uh, and not as a bad thing, but as a product of success so right. so where the publicist will offer someone that we have no interest in and we're at a place now where it will say um, gosh we're, we're really booked up or thank you but no they're bound to offer someone that with, with success you know they're bound to offer someone that is almost like a red flag for us that wow we must be doing something right Right. You have a bar that has been yeah. reached. Yeah. And so that is just starting to happen with the chat show. The, the 2010 Streamy Award winning Kevin Pollack's chat show. <laughs> um, that, uh, that a few people have actually approached me. I have not dealt in our 91, 92, whatever the interview I've not dealt once with an agent or a publicist or a manager. And I could not be more thrilled with that. Yeah, I honestly didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. Because, because I mean, this is a collaborative effort between Brody and I. So if Brody's interested in someone, then I'm interested, you know, and vice versa. I, I imagine it better be that way, Brody. <laughs> like I said, we got from the music world and the comedy world, there's yeah. a... A Venn diagram, yeah. and uh, we have some intersections. Yeah. I mean, plus, and I'm just not a yeah. music. I'm just I'm Brody is like way more into music. But if he has somebody he wants to talk to, I'm I'm absolutely happy to listen to the music and and think. Of just, worst case scenario, I'll just sit here and be a jackass. You know, it's like I can do that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and you do. And and uh, uh, yes, um, <laughs> I thought that was your bit. That was my bit. <laughs> 
Pretty much it. Uh-huh. You're looking at it. <laughs> it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, it's it's that's yeah. I, I, I'm I'm glad to see that that's that's a kind of a, a universal problem, or at least this being a tiny universe here. <laughs> well, one of the first things I was talking about was I had no idea how it would take over my life and. Yeah. How I would have something I have to do every Sunday and the task that it can become. Yeah. When you when I made the decision, we have to be live every Sunday afternoon. I don't think I knew what I was getting. Unintended consequences. Yeah, and and you know, um, we've we've stayed true to that uh, almost to the letter. There's probably even when I was in New York uh, doing a movie, uh, we found a studio and. I think we've only done, of the 92 interviews, we've only done three, maybe four pre-tapes. Um, the rest have been absolutely live. Um, and I don't know why I'm holding on to that, because the truth of the matter is, much like traditional media, no one cares about live. Right. They care about what they can record and watch when they'd like to. Yeah. Or download. I, I can honestly say I've, when they like I've, list, I've, I've probably watched the chat show live half a time and everything else has been grabbed off the net or, or but that's what it's intended TV. for oh absolutely you know right. so that's why I'm not sure why I'm killing yeah. my crew and myself right. to do this thing live right. other than <laughs> my own theory then we'll hear yours <laughs> yes because I'm sure it'll be more interesting which is uh, coincides with my decision to not have an audience uh, I've been a guest on every talk show almost, that's been in existence uh, in the last 25, 30 years in the, uh, you know, late night and even afternoon. Um, and as a guest of all these shows, you know, there's a couple things I wanted to improve upon, one of which was no pre-interviews. I don't want anyone to rehearse their anecdotes, which is true of almost every late night talk show and daytime. Also, I wanted no audience because I wanted to remove the performer's ego. Yeah. When there's an audience there, you lose the art form of conversation, in my opinion. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. And there were very few uh, network interviews I did. Bob Costas, when he did later, there was a sense of a real conversation. Tom Snyder certainly felt one-on-one. Yeah. And Charlie Rose, yeah, it was gonna, yeah, the, the king who I ripped off uh, his table and backdrop. <laughs> And to this day, call the show a Charlie Rose with a sense of humor, um, which sadly isn't saying anything, anything, let alone much. Um, but uh, I wanted to remove the performer's ego, so no audience. And then the live aspect was about the ticking clock, was about a sense of not urgency, not anxiety, but there's something about an interview that is being watched or listened to live that brings a sense of um, it's interesting as I was formalizing the sentence in my mind I realized I had just talked about removing the audience and by having it live I'm in fact implying an audience Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a sense of it I guess in the in the guests mind that there are people watching and or listening it's not open-ended you're doing it for it's it's a package but it's not in their sight line got it the audience is not there 
to them to, for, for them to perform to. Got it. It's an interesting um, dichotomy or, or combination of elements that I'm only just now fully realizing the environment with which I've um, conducted here. Because I was thinking the ticking clock of being live was to have just a very, very subtle, if not subconscious, element to the guest's sense memory of what it's like to do live television or live radio. So just by knowing it's live, just by being able to say to the guest, we go live at three, I've planted the seed. They'll never have to think about an audience. Even though during the show, I go to my laptop and I say, Jamie is forwarding me some questions from the chat room and questions from Twitter. I like to involve the audience. I remind them during the interview that there's an audience watching or listening. But there's no sense of urgency. There's no sense of an audience laughing. I think that is a huge, huge part that I've removed. When I say the performer's ego, I really mean stopping the guests from going for the laugh. Yeah, well, I mean, it is kind of like, you know, you have if you have a bunch of passive people in the room, I mean, an audience, not necessarily crew members, but yeah, it, it, it's certainly a temptation to... Play, play to the room. Yeah, try and bring them into it somehow, you know, and, and, well, and or, they to these, bring, or they to try and bring themselves into yeah, the, the show. Yeah, but for some of these guests, their, their performer's ego is very, yeah. very... That's their job. Yeah, but it's also very... Um, vulnerable Mm -hmm. and I want to remove a sense of feeling vulnerable otherwise known as putting your guest at ease right right and it was one of the things that I actually learned most from Carson uh, having the ridiculous joy and historic personally historical uh, opportunity to be on his show a couple dozen times and always just sitting next to him on the couch never actually doing a stand-up, which is, uh, if we have time, it's one of the very, very few instances in my career that I, I took the reins and changed the course of my uh, my, uh, my career because of a youth-driven, uh, youth youthful whimsy uh, notion that I was uh, immortal. We have as much time as you like. I mean, if you if you want. Uh, well, it's just uh, I'll, I'll circle back to it. Okay. But uh, to finish the thought of what I learned from Carson in terms of putting your guest at ease, he had um, he had an effortless way of doing it. Uh, we've all seen the effort. Um, the example I'll give up on his um, brilliance and effortless that that people aren't weren't aware of. The second time I was, first time I was on his show, I did uh, the Peter Falk impression where I can manipulate so that just one eye looks like it's moving. Because, of course, Peter Falk was very open about having a glass eye. Uh, and when you loved him on Columbo or whatever, you couldn't help but notice it. And sure. it could be the elephant in the room unless he brought attention to it himself. So, but it's because it's a physical gag, when I did. Columbo character sitting next to Carson and I made one eye move Carson flipped out in hysterics and so the very next time I was scheduled to be on which was shortly thereafter in the pre-interview they said 
Johnny flipped out for the Colombo. We not only want you to do it again, we want you to teach. Can you teach him how to move just one eye? And I said, actually, I can. I can teach anyone. Um, um, whether they can execute it or not, we'll, we'll see. But I can certainly instruct. It's, it's a trick. And it's easily uh, taught. So I taught him how to do the one eye uh, move. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, this is not like a pen and teller thing. <laughs> it's not that difficult. <laughs> but... Um, but every single time I did the show after that, there's that moment where Carson would be at his desk and he would speak to camera. Now, my next guest uh, is a little weird. He's in a new movie called Fill in the Blank. Please welcome Kevin Pollack. And you would come out from his left and you would wave to the audience or to the band if you were pretentious. And then, um, <laughs> which I couldn't help myself but to be on, on several occasions. And then you would walk onto the stage in front of him and his desk on your way to his right where you would ultimately sit. Now, unlike Leno, who, who dances out from behind the desk to greet the guests, hey, how's it going? Carson the King would stay at his throne and wait for you to pass in front of him and, and take your seat next to him. And in that moment when I passed in front of him for a nanosecond, or so, my back is to the audience, and I am facing him as he sit, as he stands uh, behind his desk. Mm -hmm. And in that nanosecond, he would lean towards me, cross one eye as Columbo, and say, "Ah, excuse me, I hate to bother you." <laughs> so, so think of it. Think of the, the brilliance. As I'm sitting down next to the king. In an otherwise most nerve-wracking six minutes of the year, the king, as I'm sitting down, says to me with this gesture, you're safe here, I'm a fan, we have a history, and now we have an inside joke with each other. That's badass. Don't we? Without ever yeah. verbalizing any of those thoughts in that little gesture... He made me feel like a billion fucking dollars as yeah. I sat down. That's badass. And it took, I think, quite a long time before I even realized that what is what was happening. Because initially, it's just a private celebration. You can't wait to tell someone. But when you when I told someone, I didn't say, do you realize what he was doing? Because I didn't realize right, it. Right. I would just say, Carson gave me the eye. He gave me the combo <laughs> eyes. I was sitting down. But in retrospect, I look back on it. So when I prepared to do my chat show, the notion was, um, what is the easiest, easiest way of putting the guest at ease and creating a comfortable place? If, in fact, what I'm trying to do is more like Dick Cavett and bring back the art form of the long-form conversation. By the way, you can still YouTube Cavett and see 90 minutes of Woody Allen. With an audience and commercial interruptions, but it's still fucking amazing. I loved it, Kevin, when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. You got to YouTube some of this stuff. If yeah. you don't want to get the DVDs, literally 90 minutes of Woody Allen. Um, so, you know, the idea was long form, live, so there's a sense of electricity or the possibility of it without the pressure of having to perform in front of an audience. Uh, and the way that I put them at ease is to actually do my homework. I found that to be the best way. Uh, one of my producers, uh, Jay McIntyre, Jason McIntyre, will put together a 20 to 30 page 
dossier on every guest that he will forward me by Thursday. And then between Thursday and Sunday morning, I will read through it and I will make a six to ten page version of my of bullet points. Uh, which I then refer to as the dossier during the show. And I, I think that it is that more even than my own energy, which is very relaxed and comfortable to set a tone. But I think it is the research and the homework done for me mm -hmm. that I have seen the sparkle in their eye when they say, how did you know that? Or how did you find that out? And because JMac is going beyond Google search and beyond Wikipedia and beyond IMDb, he's, he's does an amazing job and pulls from interviews and sources that are, are amazingly helpful. Um, and often the guest just forgets that they had said it once before. You know, it's just a quote. Um, misrepresented as a question. Um, but... Uh, I I I I have found that it is it is that uh, preparation um, that has helped me suggest not an inside joke, but that um, I care. Yeah, yeah. And that's ultimately was is, was at the core of what Carson did. Yeah. He's just said, "I care that you're here." And that blew my mind. Oh, dude. You can't possibly care that I'm here, Johnny. You've been doing this already 28 years. Right. Um, I'm, a, I'm not even a blip. I'm a seat filler for six minutes. But you taught him how to do the eye. In my mind. But then I did teach Carson something he took to Good. his grave, Boom. which was how to do the Peter Falk one eye move. <laughs> um, so there you go. There's which, by the way, before we move on too far past it, I loved you and fill in the blank. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> Best part of that movie. He was so good uh, in fill-in-the-blank that we brought him here tonight. Please welcome Mr. Fill-in-the-blank, although I'm now spacing on his name. Is it Kevin Spacey? Is that who it is? Um, all right, I'm going to tell you the, the took the reins of my career story, and then as Reiser, Paul Reiser would say, and then I'm going to drive you home. Um, I started performing live in front of an audience when I was 10, which is around the same time that I started watching stand-up comedians on television. And I would collect them like baseball cards because there were very few of them that you could see on television back then. And The Tonight Show was one of the ways you could see them. So um, I became very, very uh, aware, if not acutely, of which stand-up comedians were out there on television and, and what they were doing. And I would memorize their acts. All that is a way of saying that by the time I moved to Los Angeles, uh, I was very aware of the impact doing a stand-up set on The Tonight Show with Carson could have on your life. Um, and I had watched the number of comedians who got that opportunity grow from a dozen or two dozen to hundreds upon hundreds. So by, by the time I got to LA and found out that there was a gatekeeper, uh, he was a segment producer for The Tonight Show named Jim McCauley, and he was the guy who went to the, all the comedy clubs 
in L.A., really just a comedy store and improv at that point. And he was the guy who could knight you, uh, who would pull you aside if you were the lucky one chosen and say, you're ready for The Tonight Show. And I was told and schooled early on, Macaulay's going to like you. And then I was told, but you got to have enough material. He won't actually allow you on the show if you just have one set. You know, because Carson was the kind of guy who, if he loved a new comic who was on the show the first time, he would say to Macaulay, bring him back in, in a couple of years. So Macaulay knew you had to have at least two shots ready to kill or destroy our six-minute shots. And also the art of doing just six minutes is a whole other beast. Uh, it's one thing to go on and just have a six-minute spot at, at a lineup club, mm -hmm. but to go on television and destroy and, and actually, ha and, and Macaulay would work with you on your six minutes if he thought enough of you. So by the time he had asked me, circled me for a while and then asked me, I'd been in LA probably uh, at least a year and a half, two years, and and uh, when he finally uh, came, approached me at the improv one night and said, you're ready to do The Tonight Show. I hadn't really thought out this moment, so what I'm about to tell you wasn't rehearsed in terms of a conversation. And next thing I knew, I was saying to him, I've been waiting most of my life for this conversation. Please understand that before I go on. Um, I think I'll have a greater impact from the couch than I will from doing stand-up. I understand there's a protocol, and you can't bring me to the couch because I'm just a comedian. And comedians go to the little star at the center of the stage and they perform their act. And one out of uh, a thousand get pulled over to the couch by Johnny and you never know when that's going to happen. It's called spontaneously paneled. I know all of this because my friends and I who are comedians study this like there's, a, like <laughs> yeah. there's an exam. <laughs> and he said, uh-huh. And I said, so while I am thrilled beyond words that you have asked me, I would like to ask you if we could wait till I have a TV show or a movie where we can justify bringing me to the couch because I am a firm believer that I'll have a greater impact. Like my current heroes, Albert Brooks, Steve Martin, Don Rickles, guys who, Dangerfield, guys who did their act from the couch right, 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 in sure. the guise of a conversation. And Macaulay said, uh, yeah, people don't really say no to me. And I said, I'm not saying no. And I may call you back in six hours and beg you back for this opportunity. Or beg you for this opportunity back. Um, by just, by design, so many people have done, stood on the star since I was a little kid dreaming about this opportunity that I'm not saying it's been diluted. That's not the issue. The issue for me is I know where my strengths are. And if I ever had the chance to sit next to the king and do my impressions for the king sitting next to him, I just, and then at that point, Macaulay said, I'm not arguing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you that people don't say no. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I understand that. Why would they? I'm an, I'm an idiot. Uh, and he said, well, let's, um, he said, do you have prospects for a television show or a movie where they can justify you coming to the couch? I said, I don't at this point have prospects for an audition. 
or a television show or a movie. What I have is a design, and it's flawed. But I, I don't, and I don't know how long I can stand by it. I may cave in a week. Let's see. And he said, uh, "That works for me. But if you change your mind, just call me. You know, I mean, your act's gonna get better, not worse. So if you want to take some time with this, good luck with your auditions." That's insane. <laughs> it's beyond insane. I don't mean, I honestly, I, I. I, if I could go back in time, uh-huh. I'm not even sure I know that version of me because I can't wrap my brain around that thought process that that said those words. It's like it's like a cosmic ray like slammed into your brain and hit a neuron. And this is this plugs into my theory, which is I think that you personally, as an artist, if I may be so bold, to use that word. I wish. As an actor, you director, would use that word. Auteur. In describing me. Yes. You thrive on spontaneity. It's what you admire about some of the acts we discussed, some of the current um, yes. darlings of the alt comedy scene. Yes. And it's, um, yes, you do have your guests at ease. But you know that audience is out there. You know it's going out live. Right. You know that, you know, you're going to have very little opportunity to go back and, like, edit things. I mean, it's going live. We've never edited, and I know yeah. in the back of my mind we never will. Yeah. 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 And so, you're good on your feet. Well, it's it's a wonderfully fun place to thrive. And I think, without slamming us into a new topic of the million-dollar money drop, it's one of the reasons that I was not too surprised that I enjoyed hosting that show. Mm-hmm. Um, even though... I want to be a game show host may not have been something I ever said or thought. I was not shocked that when I tried to do it, it not only came easy, but it was fun. And it's simply because it's, it's completely spontaneous. I get improvise an hour. I mean, there are rules for me to make clear in terms of rehearsed verbiage. Mm-hmm. But beyond the rules and the way the game is played, I am in a position to improvise an hour with total strangers that I've literally brought on to stage as a stand-up. And that's kind of how I took to it and that's how I attacked it. But yeah, in that situation with Macaulay, um, I was as bold as anyone uh, could have been. And yet, as I as I said, I... I, I that is part of a, a moment in time of one's youth. I could never, I don't know, not never, but I can't fathom having that kind of uh, ridiculous, if not foolish, chutzpah um, to, to have that kind of opportunity placed at my feet. He knew I wasn't being disrespectful or dismissive. I made that painfully clear. He saw a kid with a vision, and it wasn't like I was trying to solve uh, a life riddle of great import. But for me personally... It was the pinnacle. That was what you'd seen. For it me. was the pinnacle. Yeah. And I didn't even know whether I would ever have the opportunity. And I knew in the back of my mind, I'm going uh, to call this guy back in six hours and go, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. Let's do it next week. Did you see? Did you run into my twin brother? Yeah. Did he, what did he tell you? Yeah. <laughs> it took it took over a year, by the way, before I did Willow for Ron Howard, uh, which is prior to Avalon, 
Rick Overton and I play the two little brownies and Willow yelling, This way! No, this way! Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big Rick Overton fan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he could justify bringing me to the couch. And I went right to the couch. And I did Peter Falk within the first 45 seconds. Carson pushed himself away from the desk. He was laughing <laughs> so hard. Nice. And I, he had me on the show twice a year until he retired. And I never did stand up on the show. Except from the couch. They always on the couch. Yeah. I never stood on that star and, and did the traditional. Did you stand up. ever get a chance to stand on it? Just just on, on the set there. <laughs> you know what? It completely lost its fascination for me because, as you said, sitting on the couch next to the king doing your act was the pinnacle. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's more than the pinnacle because because a lot of guys didn't get called over. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, I mean that's the that's the secret treasure. That's the pinnacle. Yeah, as a stand-up, if getting on it was the ultimate uh, fantasy. Yeah. Um, But because I moved to LA to become an actor, if not movie star, in my mind. Right. But see, that to me meant Michael Keaton from Night Shift, Tom Hanks from Splash. Yeah. That's what movie star meant to me. Right. In 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 its modern version of that point in my life, not uh, a young dramatic character actor. Not a, br- not a Brando. Never. No, more like a young Harvey Keitel, but still a young dramatic character actor. Again, never part of the plan. Right. So, um, that that uh, bizarre uh, moment in time where is one of the very, very few times that I took the reins. It's easily the most important moment where I took the reins of my career and changed its course. Uh, but it's, I think it, to be totally honest and frank, if not obvious, since we can look back at statistics, it had little to no bearing on my career. It just was the greatest personal moment Mm -hmm. of of my creative life. Um, and then people would see me on the Tonight Show, of course, people being the civilians and the public and the friends. And they and the greatest compliment they would always pay me was, "Person really likes you." They they weren't saying it like, "I know I'm paying you a compliment." It was all that they would they would go, "Man, he really likes you." Right, right. As opposed to, you know, that bit you did with the Dudley Moore that was incredibly funny. They uh, and that also took a while to have its effect and for me to realize what what they were really saying and how that was the greatest compliment. Was that you could tell when when Carson really liked the guest because he would fuck with them a little bit, yeah, yeah. he would get playful with them, and so all these talk show appearances later, a couple dozen Tonight Shows, a couple dozen Conan O'Briens, a couple dozen Letterman's, and everybody else sprinkled throughout. I never did stand up on the talk show until uh, about two years ago when I did it on Letterman. Um, he was, he, they, they were doing a thing called Impressionist Week, <laughs> uh, not too dissimilar from, uh, Ventriloquist Week. And, uh, they called up and said, would Kevin mind being the Friday night, the closer mm. of Impressionist Week? Cause I'd already done the show a couple dozen times as an actor. So they right. felt like we don't want him to think that we're, we're saying that uh, all he does is a guy who does silly voices. He says, doing a silly voice. <laughs> um, but I was thrilled. Yeah. 
after all this time, and it's sort of come full circle, and I said, this is what I've been thriving and, 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 and yearning to do secretly, because I certainly hadn't told anyone for fear of them saying, well, that's all we'd like you to do. Yeah. You know? Um, but uh, having said all that, I will give one last credit to Merv Griffin, who, prior to Carson, uh, was a great supporter of stand-up comedians. His was an afternoon show. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, when I was young, we favor. Yeah, he was the first Oprah, Ellen, more Ellen than Oprah, because it was all entertainment. Um, but he had me on three times in about six months, and I did nothing but stand-up. No, he sat me down spontaneously on the panel my second or third time, but I did the show each time as a stand-up comedian prior to Carson. So I, I can't say that I never did stand-up on it. I never did stand-up on a late night mm-hmm. until... And certainly not still think of the Tonight Show. Until recently, yeah. Yeah, because that was, the, I mean, you know... I, I, I we, we watched Tonight we watched the tonight Show when I, when I could get to stay up, yeah. but, but not so much. Um, and then... Uh, but I do remember afternoons watching like the Mike Douglas yeah. and the, the Merv Griffins. You're clearly a lot older than you look. I'm, I'm 41, actually, just a couple days ago. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. You're a fellow Scorpion. I no. Sagittarius. You're Sagittarian, right. We were, we're past the window. Yeah. But, uh, uh. So, wow, 41, and you actually grew up with Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin. Mm hmm. Yeah. What year did so, they go off the air? Do we oh, imagine? In the mid-70s, I would imagine. Okay. Mid-late 70s. All right. Yeah, I mean, I'd, look, I'd have to look it up. But, I mean, I remember those shows. I remember the, the whatever I was So it's clearly what Ellen wanted to do. Yeah. You know, and, and I think Rosie O'Donnell, to, to a great degree, wanted, yes. wanted, wanted and, in fact, succeeded in doing it. I think she even said. <clears throat> well, I'm still surprised that show was off the air because that was a juggernaut. She chose to leave. Which uh, right. I can't imagine makes sense to anyone but her. Maybe that was her little moment of, oh, I'm done with this, I'm going to walk away. Well, I'll tell you, as much as I, I, I bemoaned my decision to be an every Sunday afternoon thing, for those of them who do it five days a week, yeah. with very little time off, it wasn't until Ellen, actually, that um, they... Uh, that any of these people took time off. Or maybe Oprah, I guess, would take a summer off. I, I, I don't watch Oprah because I don't know her, her schedule. But yeah, so those shows never took any time yeah. off, you know. Um, anyways. Well, we committed. I mean, with this, we committed every Monday. We're going to have something up every Monday, and we're going to do something every Monday. Even if, you know, if for whatever reason guests fall through, we don't have the backup, we'll just sit in front of a microphone and yammer at each other. Every We'll have something up. I don't think we've... We, we had one week where things went really horribly awry, and we did like a 10-minute little, oh, we screwed up. Or you, you did most of it, <laughs> right, I think. Right. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it is a commitment. And I think that's, the, I think that's the, the difference between a lot of podcasts out there is it seems like it's very casual. You know, I, I think uh, y- if you're going to do it, do it. Mm. You know, if you're going to do it. Like, but, but I was also thinking that while we were talking about and, and Brody's brilliant spontaneity theory, and I'm not being sarcastic, <laughs> even though I kind of made a sarcastic face. <laughs> That's um, okay because they can't see it. I know, I know, but I had to fess up because I realized about halfway through it, I was I felt kind of snarky about it, and I don't know why. But but the Paul F. Tompkins, um, Jimmy Pardo. Yeah. I mean, um, it, 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 
that dates back to Carson. I mean, he he represented something spontaneous to me coming up more so than any of the stand-ups I was yeah. worshiping. Yeah, yeah, and and the act, the whole you know, we talked earlier about you know that the the idea of you know here's your act and it should look spontaneous, but in fact it's completely rehearsed. And and, and I I think we've talked about this on the show before, but. I fell out of love with stand-up comedy when I was, it, it, it was the Jake Johansson era, those guys were, and, and the big venue was Comedy Central with their little short clip shows. Mm. And I would watch these clip shows, and I, it was like sitting in the, you know, in a room watching their sets. And I would watch, let's just say, a Jake Johansson do a set. And then i watch him do the same set with the changes in his act. And I'd watch him do another one, you know, like Short Attention Span Theater would have a five minute set of his and then another show clip mm-hmm. show would have what year was that you think 90 yeah that was 92? that was just before the death of, of stand up comedy yeah and comedy you know saturation you can talk had an up in lane no I just wanted to know if Gene wanted me to take any you can take pictures all you like I'm good no I just thought you weren't looking for your life you'll take you a little s- piece of my soul with each one because I'm, 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 I'm 118th Cherokee but you are correct about the no soul want to take Take a lens cap off me. Those damn brothers Warner took my soul years ago. I wait. <laughs> what? And that's uh thank you. I was at Warner Brothers what this morning? When did I do ADR? Hello, Travis Rink. Yeah, yeah but they can, we can, you can talk. They can, it's, they, it's, can, they get to edit. We don't we don't know what that oh, means. I, this is not gonna get this is not gonna get edited. Oh. Out. Now my dog wanders in when we're doing it at my house. My wife wanders in with the baby. It's mom gets ice. Mom, my mom, who's deaf as a stump, goes <laughs> clanking deaf around. Deaf as a stump. <laughs> yeah, goes clanking around the house. <laughs> How you doing, sir? Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Was it a couple of days ago? Thirtieth. It was the thirtieth. Holy shit! That's two. Did you get the Did you get the glad handing promo shot that I love so very much? <laughs> that's a new car dealership. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, right, we're good. almost done. Thank you very much. We're yeah, we're 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 as done as you want to be. In fact, let's wrap it up. All right, let's wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> what was that's I talking about? You've learned to uh, appreciate. Uh, Working together, and you guys were saying you do the thing together, and if you don't have a guest... No, that wasn't it. You'll muck it up. (laughs) You were making another point. I was making it. Uh, Spontaneity and uh, Carson, uh, Taco Pardo, but... uh, Oh, Jake Johansson, that's what what it was. But but when I saw the sausage being made, I didn't like it. And for the longest time, it it took me... I mean, it literally took me like 10 years to, to... Get behind that. That's what stand-up comedy is. It's mm-hmm. not spontaneous. It's not Groucho. It's not, you know. But it can but be. That's it, how the. But, and era. now, and now, I see it absolutely can be. Yeah. It absolutely can be. It depends on the type of act you want to do. I mean, yeah, yeah. The, mm-hmm. the truth is that the 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 audience now in the alternative room certainly um, uh, don't like to see rehearsed patter unless it's presented as. A stream of conscious thoughts. It can be. It can be um, in the right hands, um, performed without feeling too performed. Well, so much of it seems to be personal, right? And and so it has to be couched in those terms. It has to be. But people who are going to comedy clubs across the country uh, are not uh, indicative to what we just described as the audience in an alternative room. Agreed. Here in Los Angeles or New York, the comedy clubs and theaters across the country, when they want to, when they pay to see an act. They don't expect stream of consciousness. This is why I think I'm afraid of flappers. Yeah, that is. 
In fact, I didn't want to say anything, but perhaps why you were afraid. All right. <laughs> this, well, really quick, my last question. Um, <laughs> oh, Brody. And then I'll drive you home. Yes. Um, well, really quickly, uh, what you, what you projects you have coming up, you have the Million Dollar Drop. Million Dollar Money Drop debuts yes. uh, December 20th, runs four nights straight, uh, six hours over those four mm-hmm. nights. And then we'll be back on the first Tuesday in January following Glee on your Fox Broadcasting Network. Um, the big year, a big comedy and for uh, the Brothers Warner, I think. You know what? You might have to look that up. I'm not sure of the studio. Um, Steve Martin, Jack Black, Owen Wilson, Angelica Houston, Rashida Jones, Diana Reeves, Bill McCown, myself, some other funny people. The big year directed by the same guy that did Devil Wears Prada, David Frankel. And then uh, Kevin Smith's Red State, which is his most uh, mature drama that he's ever written and directed. Yeah. And I am thrilled beyond words to be a part of it. That is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So is he going to do a bunch of dick jokes? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's all a big setup for an hour and a half of dick jokes. Would it be awesome if it was like... 90 minutes of awesome drama, and then bam, just a huge dick joke in the end. <laughs> a, a, a blooper reel. <laughs> right, right, right like, the, like the old Smokey and the Bandit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Um, so anything else uh, of, of import at Kevin Pollock's chat show? Um, uh, com. Uh, all the episodes are in archive there, or if you want to download them on iTunes, just look, type in Kevin Pollock's chat show. Go to your Amazon and get yourself uh, uh, a DVD of the last... Uh, one hour stand up comedy special that was just on a few months ago called The Littlest Suspect. Which is the awesomest title ever. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed that. I, I think um, Jamie picked that. All right. Which will certainly take credit for it. He's a keeper. If you ask her, <laughs> yeah, she is. No, it's, it's uh, I, 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 I with, with great relish, told friends of mine about it. <laughs> it was awesome. I'm doing the little. Oh, thanks. I'm picking it up. I'm oh, and uh, and uh, look up the web series that I mentioned that I wrote and, and direct, co-wrote and directed and, and acted in a little uh, called Vamped Out. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we just wrote, finished writing season two, and um, so I'll look for that also. And um, yeah, there's really no stopping. More credits to come. <laughs> I'm afraid. I refuse to uh, rest on anything. Yeah, that's I, I, I. That's what I keep. I, I who do almost no prep for these interviews. Uh, <laughs> you know, aside from the fact that I watched you work for years, mm-hmm. um, uh, is that's I was looking at I was looking at your IMDb page, and I'm like, yeah, he works. He's a worker. Mm-hmm. Or as Elaine says, I'm an earner. (laughs) Exactly. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you, guys. This has been fantastic. We really appreciate that. My pleasure, and and, uh, continued success to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this effort. Right. I'm Brody Foster Hubbard. I'm Gene George. I'm Kevin Pollack. And now, to wrap things up perfectly, we invite in our favorite. Hello, how are you? I can't believe these two knuckleheads came into my home and refused to ask me to step forward and be counted. It's absurd, if not disappointing. However, here I am, boys and girls. I'm not wearing pants. (laughs) (laughs) We're caught in a trap.